What I'd like to do is to uh, get started again, please. Uh, the uh, next, uh, the next uh, speaker on the menu um, is a, a is a, uh, a sort of a shift in gears. Uh, the one of the things that uh, biology doesn't have a huge amount of are real theoreticians. Uh, there are lots of theoreticians, but there are relatively few theoreticians who deal with real problems in the real world. However, <laughs> the, uh, uh, our next speaker, Neil Risch, uh, is uh, probably the, currently, I would say, the foremost of the theoreticians thinking about genetic epidemiology and how you're really going to get uh, from all this genomic information uh, to understandings of uh, understanding of uh, human phenotype. Types. Uh, he has, of course, uh, written some of the uh, major ways in which this is done now, and uh, he's going to tell us about uh, what, what he probably didn't write in the abstract, uh, like everybody else, and uh, here he is. <laughs> thank, uh, thank you very much, David. Uh, and thanks, uh, you and Shirley both, for inviting me to this uh, auspicious occasion. Um, uh, David, uh, some of you probably know, David was the one who actually recruited me to Stanford uh, eight years ago, yes. It has been eight years, David, believe it or not. And um, I also was thinking about this, that um, before I came to Stanford, I was actually at Yale for 10 years. And the gentleman who recruited me to Yale 18 years ago is also here in this audience, and that's Lee Rosenberg. He's now here at, at uh, Princeton as well. He was the chair of the human genetics department when I first came to Yale 18 years ago. And I'm um, thinking about reflecting more on my, uh, uh, the chair of my other department, which was epidemiology and public health um, at Yale, Burton Singer, is also here now at Princeton. And as a statistician, I was trying to determine if this was just a chance probability or there was something more going on. <laughs> and I think, you know, maybe Shirley can answer my question, but I'm not sure. It seemed like a, too much for it to be a coincidence, but it, maybe it's what it's showing is that Princeton is really moving into the forefront of uh, computational biology and genetics. Um, Several of us, uh, David and uh, Rick Lipton and Eric, were at a meeting a few months ago, um, NHGRI, the National Human Genome Research Institute, where there was a major discussion. Some of you may have read about this in Science Magazine. There was a major discussion about planning for the next 10 years of uh, the Human Genome Project. Now that uh, the sequence looks to be coming to completion, or at least nearly so, uh, in a few months, you know, what are the next steps? And the way uh, the discussion got formalized was, first it started as pillars, as I think Eric remembers. Um, it was pillars, but the pillars turned into a house. Somehow we went from a uh, vertical structure to a horizontal structure, a house with floors. And um, all the floors were genomically related, but had uh, different uh, uh, areas of contact. So the first floor was the basic for uh, genomics to biology. And um, we've heard a lot about that already this morning, how genomics impacts um, both the present, as David talks about, and the future of uh, what biology is going to be doing. 
And I think, Eric, from at least from your abstract, you're going to be telling a lot about bio, um, biology turning into the informatics age and the implications of, of computerization um, uh, has had and is going to continue to have even more so in the future on biology. The second floor was uh, the relationship between genomics and health. And by implication, uh, I would say, uh, the impact of genomics on disease. And the top floor was uh, the relationship between genomics and society. So of course, um, as we learn and discover uh, how genes impact on the public's health and disease, this has social ramifications. And uh, so there are many social, legal, ethical issues involved in that translation. Now, to me, and uh, I think at the end of that, the meeting, uh, Francis Collins, who of course is the director of the institute and was chairing the meeting, uh, brought up the fact that the importance of that middle floor. And to me also, the, to me that, that also really uh, from a social perspective is the critical floor. Because if, if we are able to, and I'm saying if, uh, maybe I'm being too pessimistic, I should say when, uh, translate the, the information from genomics into disease and disease susceptibility, uh, you know, that's where the important social implications are going to be. But it's not going to happen if we can't make those, that, those steps, if we can't translate the genomic information into um, implications for health. Uh, we're, we're, we're just talking. We're just speculating about the social and ethical implications. So I guess what I'm saying is I view that middle floor as a really critical floor. And so the major questions are how do we, how are we going to take this vast wealth of knowledge about genomics and discover, make the discoveries about how um, genes and genetic variation influence, influences health. Now, what I'm going to talk about today, actually, um, I would say as a reflection, I'm really happy to talk on this topic because uh, I think what you're going to see here to some extent reflects eight years' worth of arguments, discussions uh, with David. Um, <laughs> Over this, over this very subject. And, and although David protests, uh, at least he has to me, that uh, human genetics is not going to be so much uh, in the forefront of his future, I, I, I'm still a little skeptical about this. I know, I know he wants to get back into yeast, but I think he's still going to be tempted. Um, and uh, so anyway, I'm, as I said, this is uh, a lot of what I'm going to talk about reflects uh, many discussions that I've had with David over the years. And as you can see, um, um, I am actually, as David indicated, I do have a theoretical mathematical background, but you can see I've made the transition and, uh, because I'm switch I've switched to PowerPoint from overheads. And, <laughs> and, and I think this is nice for David. I think this is probably the first time David has seen me do a, a PowerPoint presentation. <laughs> so now he can, he can really see that I have made a transition here. I really am applied. Okay. <laughs> okay. So there are... A number of questions that I hope to talk about, at least to some extent, um, and, it's, and this is focusing on SNPs. So why SNPs? And we'll talk about also what is a SNP, what's the definition of SNP? How many SNPs are there? Which SNPs are the ones that are important, or which SNPs should we focus on when we do studies, applied studies? And what are, would be appropriate study or most op the optimal study designs for carrying out disease detection uh, gene studies. 
So, okay, why SNPs? Now, I'm, I'm sure you've heard a lot about SNPs and this focus um, in terms of human genetics on SNPs. Now, um, Shirley talked about David's classic paper in 1980 uh, on RFLPs. And what that has led to, actually, is the positional cloning identification of over 1,200 Mendelian disease genes. And that's because there are classic approaches to going from a disease segregating in families to now classic, <laughs> 20 years, um, to positional cloning or identifying a, a gene for a disease based on its actual physical location in the genome. And this, the first step in this process is what's called linkage analysis, where you look at the segregation or the co-inheritance of a disease with genetic markers. Um, after RFLPs were first discussed by David uh, and early used early, very early on, for example, the identification of the Huntington's gene on chromosome 4, uh, one of the first examples, um, soon uh, the, the attention switched to microsatellite markers. These are tandem, uh, short tandem repeat markers, um, which are reasonably plentiful in the genome and incredibly useful for linkage markers because of their high polymorphism content. And positional cloning also involves linkage disequilibrium, whereas where in founder populations, um, and not just, it would, we could debate what a founder population is, but um, where historically a lot of the affected cases descend from a single individual and therefore share, in fact, the same uh, piece of chromosome identical. And that allows you additional opportunities because essentially you're getting a much larger pedigree, a historical pedigree. You're missing the data on the first generations, but you've basically got a very, a very large pedigree in which you can do the linkage analysis. Now, as it turns out, this has been, as I said, this has been an ex exceptionally successful endeavor. But it has had more limited success when applied to what we call non-Mendelian diseases or complex diseases, of which there are many. And of course, this is where there is now a great deal of interest in terms of whether and how um, genomics is going to solve the problem of the understanding of the genetic basis of those disorders. So psychiatric disorders, cardiovascular disease, um, autoimmune diseases like multiple sclerosis, um, diabetes, and so on things that are very common, and other things that are not so common, um, but are also complex, like autism. So again, why SNPs? Well, the reason is that, that uh, the, the conventional approach of linkage analysis and positional cloning is not, turns out, it's not very powerful when you're trying to identify genes that have only moderate or low risk. That the whole paradigm is, hinges on a particular gene or mutation having a large risk associated with it. And so um, that approach, again, if you're going to be looking for the genes that have smaller effects, is not going to be very effective. And uh, SNPs are a good resource because uh, they're also very plentiful in the genome and uh, much more plentiful than the classic markers. And um, also, more likely, and this is going to be a major point of discussion, to be actually the disease-causing agents in the first place. So just to give you an example, this is, I'm involved and have been for many years in a large collaborative project on the genetic epidemiology of multiple sclerosis um, in Canada. And it's just one project we did. Now, many of you may probably know, uh, MS is an autoimmune disease, and it's associated with certain HLA alleles, HLA on chromosome 6P, 
We studied at one point, um, and we have more families in this, but we had three, 333 affected SID pairs, and we did a linkage analysis on chromosome 6 to see if we could get evidence for linkage to this HLA region. Now, we didn't use, if we don't use the specific HLA markers, but microsatellites in the region, in that collection of 333 SID pairs, we got a log score of 0.7. Now, I don't know if you know, this, familiar with the statistics, but usually statistical significance in a linkage study um, requires a log score of at least three, and in, in, in a full genome scan, maybe something even higher. Um, so, lower and near statistical significance. The allele sharing, um, in this region was about 55%. Now, if in a much larger sample, that degree of allele sharing would become significant. But in a study of this size, um, it's not. Now, then we subsequently looked at um, one particular HLA allele, the DR15 allele, which we knew beforehand from other studies is associated with the disease. And we looked to see if that allele in those very same families was over-transmitted to the affected children. And this is called a TDT, or transmission disequilibrium test. And in fact, the, the transmission ratio, 330 to 148, yields a chi-square of 69. Now, in log-score terms, this would be a log-score somewhere close to 15. So the point, and, and the relative risk, or which we approximate by an odds ratio here, of, of only 2.2. So the point is that we have here something that could be very, that is very, very, very easily detected in this sample by an association analysis with a particular allele, but linkage analysis was really not very effective on identifying this location in the first place. So it is findings like this that provide the rationale for why the field is really moving now more towards association-based analyses than classic linkage studies, and it's because Probably the majority of the, the loci or the genes that contribute to complex diseases have risks in this range, not in the 10 to 20-fold risk range. They're, they're much more modest in their effect and therefore are going to require an approach such as this, an association type of analysis rather than classic linkage analysis. Now, um, the word SNP has been used a lot, and SNP means single nucleotide polymorphism. Now, I think probably everybody here knows what single means. <laughs> and probably, I would guess, most of the people here probably know what a nucleotide is. But how many people here now really know what a polymorphism is? And uh, I use this term, I've used this term for decades. I'm sure many of us have. Um, and I decided to go back and actually look up to see its technical definition. And this is, this is a word that has been used extensively in the population genetics literature. And um, one of the advantages of being at Stanford is we have the experts down the hall um, in population genetics, Luca Cavalli-Sforza, and I checked with him, and I checked with his book, and I figured his book would be probably, say, the final word on this subject. Um, his book with Walter, I guess most people in human population genetics sort of consider the Bible or the cornerstone of, of uh, modern human population genetics. So according to their definition, a polymorphism is a condition, now you see it's a condition, and it doesn't say specifically a genotype or a gene or an allele, a condition in which the population contains at least two phenotypes, and then in parentheses, and presumably at least two genotypes, indicating that the original definition of polymorphism actually didn't have to do with genes per se, it had to do with traits, measured traits. Neither of which is rare, that is, neither of which occurs with a frequency less than, say, 1%. Now, most people are using this 
definition as something cast in stone. But I went back and I noticed this, and I was a little bit surprised that there was a comma say in there. <laughs> because it suggested to me that Luca even wasn't really sure what to say, you know, uh, what to use, because it's arbitrary. And, you know, and that is the fact. The fact is that this definition, to some extent, is arbitrary. But from the point of application, when we start studying genes and disease, this becomes an issue. And, it, you know, the issue is at what frequency range of variants, of genetic variants in the human population, do we care? So, as I said, now, I don't know if you can tell, but one of the other words, words there was bolded. That is population. Okay, so obviously he didn't define what a population is, but that's also another very important issue, what, what constitutes a population. And it's important because if we're going to define frequencies of variance or SNPs in the context of a population, then we need to know also what constitutes a population. Now, this is important because there is variation across populations for SNPs for variants. Some variants only occur, and we know disease-causing variants, and some of these are reasonably common, occur only within one population, where we can call this a racial group, we can call it an ethnic group, but they are fairly localized. And I have a few examples on here. The hemochromatosis mutation, the primary mutation, which is associated with actually a very high risk of hemochromatosis, C282Y, has a frequency up to 8% in Northern Europe. It, is, it occurs all throughout Europe, but it doesn't occur in non-Caucasians. Um, there's another mutation that many of you may know about. This is a, a, a deletion um, in the chemokine receptor uh, gene that occurs with a frequency up to 14% also in Northern Europeans, but also is absent outside of um, Caucasians. So here are two examples of mutations or variants, uh, certainly polymorphisms in that population because the frequency is up to 8 to 14 percent, um, that restricted to one major continent. On the other hand, you can have polymorphisms that are specific to subpopulations or subgroups within a large uh, continent like that. And one example I put here is from a disease I've studied, which is Gaucher disease. The primary mutation, N370S, um, that's found in Ashkenazi Jews, occurs at a frequency of about 3.5% in that population. But it doesn't occur at a frequency anything like that in any other population. So, um, and I have another example here, classic blood marker, ABO. The B allele, which is seen around most of the world, does not exist in individuals who derive from the Americas, Native Americans. So obviously, the definition of SNP is very much population dependent. Now, one can look to address this question about how important is this, how important is this, how differentiated are different groups with regard to polymorphisms. And this is from a study by, actually, this is Steve O'Brien's group at um, the NCI. And again, we can get into population genetics and categorization of groups. African Americans as a group have, it's been estimated, have about 20, 15 to 20 percent Caucasian admixture. So when you look at the frequency range of alleles, polymorphic alleles in a Caucasian population, um, when you get up to 10 percent, it's very likely that you'll find the same uh, allele to be polymorphic in African Americans. But that's less true when you look at East Asians who, who do not have, at least um, even in the United States, do not have that degree of Caucasian admixture. And you can see that even up to 30%, there's a 20% chance that uh, polymorphic alleles at that frequency, which is a fairly high frequency, won't exist 
in, in an Asian population. And another way to look at this is how much a low frequency difference can you get between different groups? And if you look here, again, the, the last comparison is between African Americans and East Asians. Um, you can see that, that a quarter of the alleles will show an allele frequency difference. A quarter of the loci or the SNPs will show an allele frequency difference of at least 30% between those groups. And I would, I would argue that, especially when you're towards a lower frequency range, that can be uh, uh, an important difference. Ah, now, how many SNPs are there? So, does anybody have a guess? Anybody want to venture a guess how many SNPs there are in the human genome? Anybody brave enough? <laughs> I'm not that brave either. I could say what I think a minimum number is, but maybe it's not even a well-formulated question because I told you, even definitionally, this is a difficult concept. What we can say 1%, we can use a definition of 1%, but 1% in whom? So how many different populations would we have to survey to really have coverage that we know we've identified everything that constitutes a SNP. So what I'm going to talk about now is sort of what's been, what's in the public databases that have been aggregated over the last several years, uh, largely as a result of the sequencing of the human genome. Um, so what this says here in the public databases, somewhere between one and a half and three million um, have been identified, but as I'll point out, these are primarily the higher frequency ones, and it's pretty easy to see why. Um, so, again, out of the publication of the two, the private uh, sequencing, human uh, genome sequencing project and the public one, uh, and one of the outcomes was to look for variation um, or differences between sequence chromosomes um, uh, and how, you know, in their location and uh, some degree estimation of their frequencies. So, um, in, the, in the science paper from, that was published by uh, Solera, uh, they had identified a total of about looking at their database and compared it with the public SNP consortium and a database uh, uh, collected by Pui Kwok, who's now at UCSF, um, 2.7 million SNPs that had unique locations, but um, that did not take into account that there was overlap between those three databases. Now, if you look, now this is going to be a major point that if you look to see how much overlap there is in the identified SNPs between these databases, the answer is pretty low. So um, that 2.7 million is probably pretty close to accurate in terms of the total number that are in there because the number of duplicates or repeats between the databases is not very high. As I'm pointing out here, it's somewhere around 8 to 10 percent. Um, now, the other group, um, which is the International SNP uh, Working Group, and I, this was published again um, in the Nature uh, issue of Nature that reported the public sequencing effort. And uh, this, these, these analyses were done, I think, primarily at the Whitehead uh, from Eric and David Altschuler. Um, they resequenced uh, uh, 24 ethnically diverse individuals and compared back and pack sequences, identifying a total of 1.4 million SNPs. They also regenotyped some of those SNPs uh, to determine what the false positive rate was, which looked to be about 5%. Now, one thing is we're going to talk about is both false positive and false negative. So some of these SNPs, as reported in the database, you know, appear to be artifacts. 
some, uh, if you don't find a SNP in an, in an independent sample, it could be that it was low frequency and it could actually be real, but just didn't show up in an independent sample. So it makes a difference um, whether you regenotype the same sample or a different sample when you're dealing with low frequencies. This is a study uh, from uh, a Pui Quark's group, which again was looking to, uh, looked at 500 candidate SNPs from the SNP consortium. And uh, they had a higher false positive rate. Again, it's hard to say whether it's because those really were initially false positives or it was because they were using a different sample and the rare ones are not going to show up again. But they found 17% um, uh, were not polymorphic in their hands, in their sample. So the last one here <clears throat> I'm going to mention is a, a report uh, from Clay Stevens et al. at Genesons which was published uh, in July of 2001. This was a somewhat different approach. They resequenced 164 chromosomes. Again, it was an ethnically diverse sample. Focusing on genes, their strategy of that company is to focus on gene regions. Um, they looked at about, well, 720 KB of total sequence. They identified 3,900 SNPs. Now, the important point here I would make is that when they looked to see what they identified, in terms of SNPs, and they compared it to what was in the public available, available public database, dbSNP, they found that only 2% of the SNPs they found were previously described. And if they eliminated the singletons, which are potentially the, the most, the rarest ones, and possible, possibly errors, uh, if when you're doing the sequencing, when you find a change once, it's possible it was a sequencing error or something like that. If you find a change multiple times, that makes it less likely. So uh, people often exclude singletons. The overlap, overlap percent was still quite low. So um, if we extrapolate from their data to 30,000 genes in the human genome, um, there would be just in that in the coding regions or neighboring, if you extrapolate from their gene-based strategy, somewhere close to 400,000 SNPs. And uh, if you assume, and again, a lot of assumptions here, if you assume that the coding regions constitute 5% of all the DNA, that would be at least 7 million SNPs. Now again, that's 7 million SNPs defined based on sequencing 164 chromosomes, 82 people from the collections or from, you know, of the ethnicity that they had in their sample. So again, we have to be very specific about what we're talking about here. Okay, so this is a more recent study. This was from uh, David Cox's group at Prologen where they sequenced uh, chromosome 21, 20 chromosomes. So again, you can see there's a relatively small number of chromosomes and identified 36,000 SNPs or 24,000 if they exclude the singletons. Um, again, they had relatively low overlap with um, the SNP consortium database. Only about 13% of the SNPs they found um, were in the SNP consortium database. If you extrapolate from their numbers, if you assume chromosome 21 is about 1% of the total genome, you get 6.5 million SNPs minimum. And as I say here, these are higher frequency SNPs. And the reason they're higher frequency SNPs is because they really, they resequence only 20 chromosomes. So you can imagine if you're sequencing, and I'll show you this specifically, I think, um, only 20 chromosomes, you're not going to find SNPs that have a frequency of 1 to 2%. Oh, okay, maybe I took that out. but. But again, you can imagine that uh, with 20 chromosomes studied, um, you'll have a good chance of detecting a SNP that has a frequency of 10% of the population, but you're not going to get very many of the ones that have a 1% or 2% frequency. So what I've said here is um, 5 to 10 million SNPs. But 
I think also this is probably really an underestimate. I think the number probably, again, it's, 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 it's hard to say because it depends on how we define it, but um, I would say 15 million is probably a more realistic number, and which interestingly is nearly three orders of magnitude greater than the number of genes in the human genome or the projected number of genes in the human genome. So this raises um, a, to me, a critical question. Because I think unless the technology really turns around dramatically, um, I don't know that anybody's proposing to genotype 10 million SNPs um, in any study. And if we're talking about studying, you know, 500 cases, 500 controls, 1,000 people, you know, we're talking about billions and billions of SNPs. So the real question is, how do we condense this number? How do we decide which SNPs to genotype? And um, as I see it, there's two fundamental strategies one can employ. One is map-based and one I call gene-based. Now, the map-based strategy, um, this, this corresponds to what's conventionally called, um, so it has been called the haplotype map of the genome, relies on the assumption that uh, disease susceptibility alleles are, well, of unknown location and unknown type. So the real virtue of this approach, again, as has been used, or it's basically what underlies classic positional cloning, is that we don't need to make any assumptions about anything in terms of biology or anything else, that genes will be identified purely based on location and not having to know anything else about the biology. Um, so because it's a positional cloning strategy, it requires a dense set of markers. And the idea is that if you have a sufficiently dense set of markers, a haplotype or some collection of haplotypes will show an association with a disease outcome, but not necessarily because the haplotype itself per se is causally related. It's just associated with whatever the causal variants are that might be related to the disease risk. So then the question is, well, how many haplotypes are there and how many SNPs do you have to study by this approach? And again, there have been a couple of major efforts to look at this question. This one comes, from, again, from Perligen, um, where they, they uh, constructed haplotypes and identified... Now, haplotypes, uh, I'm, not, I'm not sure Eric may talk about this also, that um, haplotypes seem to... Or, or the linkage disequilibrium seems to have somewhat of a blocky structure, although it, you, you have to be careful how you define these blocks, as, as you'll see. Um, but that within confined regions, you can potentially reduce the number of variants you would have to type to extract most of the genetic information in a particular region. But it's been conceptually simplifying to think in terms of, quote, blocks, um, where, there's, where there's a lot of redundancy in terms of the variants that exist within those blocks. So what they find is, uh, what they found was about their average block size for the linkage disequilibrium pattern was about 8 kb. And if you extrapolate from chromosome 21 to the full genome, you get about 400,000 uh, haplotype blocks. And they estimated a minimum of 4,500 SNPs would be required to capture common haplotypes. Now, again, again, there are definitional issues here. Uh, I think they were talking about the haplotypes that constituted 80% of the total variation that they saw based on the, the um, genotyping or the sequencing that they had done. So if you extrapolate those numbers out from chromosome 21, you get um, about 700,000 SNPs would be required to do this approach for the full genome. Now, the other group that has looked at this is Eric Lander's group and David Altschler, 
Um, this, these were results published last year in June, uh, where they studied, uh, instead of one chromosome, they looked at uh, multiple chromosome regions and about 13 megabases, a much larger collection of chromosomes, 400 chromosomes in this analysis. And they took SNPs out of the uh, SNP consortium database, candidate SNPs, and it looks like they found about a 10% false positive rate in this analysis. And they identified uh, of 928 haplotype uh, blocks. Uh, their block size was somewhat larger than the block size uh, that came out of the uh, Pearlgen analysis, and it was different. Now, this is the other thing I'll, I'll, I, I'm going to point out also, is that linkage disequilibrium, just like genetic variation per se, varies across populations. And there is considerably less linkage disequilibrium or more genetic variation actually in Africans than in non-Africans. So um, the block size, as they found, was actually shorter in Africans than in Europeans or East Asians. Um, so they, extrapolating from their data uh, to the whole genome, you would estimate a total of nearly 300,000 blocks for Africans and about half that number for Europeans and Asians. Depending on whether you were able to selectively pick SNPs that extracted the right amount of information or you had to pick SNPs randomly, either way, uh, well, it would make a difference how many SNPs you would have to type, but in either case, it would be uh, at least a million SNPs was the estimate would be required for Africans and half a million SNPs for non-Africans. Now, some additional questions about this. As I was saying, um, we can talk about a haplotype map, but isn't it really haplotype maps? Because the linkage disequilibrium patterns, we cannot assume, are going to be identical across different ethnic groups. Um, and as I already showed you or told you, um, the disequilibrium patterns in Africans are different than in other populations. And a haplotype map constructed for Caucasians would not necessarily be um, appropriate for studying East Asians. So, so there is a major question about uh, this approach in terms of how many different maps we're going to require. Um, okay, so now the other approach, which I refer to here as either a gene-based or a sequence-based approach. Now, there's one primary difference, and the primary difference is the first assumption, and that is that we're going to pay a, potentially going to pay a price, but the assumption is that SNP functionality is predictable and that we can prioritize SNPs based on prior likelihood of functional significance. And, for example, um, that we can prioritize the SNPs that are located in coding regions. We can prioritize the ones that give rise to non-synonymous amino acid substitutions. We can even make the ones that are more conservative. We can focus on ones that uh, create less conservative changes. Um, we know that frame shift mutations are obviously very important. Mutations that occur within exon-intron boundaries that uh, affect uh, uh, transcription are also very important, as well as promoter regions. So the point being that um, instead of this whole genome-based approach, which is a very anonymous approach, that we would propose making a commitment to focusing more on genes, at least to start with. <clears throat> now, what is the basis for this argument? Is there, can we marshal some evidence to support this approach? Now, as of uh, June of last year, um, I don't know if you were familiar with this database, but uh, investigators at Cardiff, Wales, have collected um, and databased all the mutations underlying positionally cloned and non-positionally cloned uh, human genes um, and looked at the distribution of mutations. 
And from their database, out of 27,000 total mutations that they report, um, the distribution is actually very interesting. 22% um, result from deletions, another 7% insertions and duplications, another 2% complex rearrangements. Um, missense or nonsense changes, 59%. 10% are splicing changes, and less than 1% are changes that occur in the regulatory region. And I think this gives us some basis on which to try to uh, guess or estimate what the distribution um, of, of variants that are functionally important in the human genome, not just for Mendelian diseases, but maybe for non-Mendelian diseases, um, gives us some per perhaps hope for predictability. And as I was saying, splice mutations are very rare, but they show up 10% in the database. So, so obviously those are very high risk associated changes. Now, another thing that they did is they showed that, and this is, you can measure the severity of an amino acid substitution in many ways. One is called the Grantham scale. And according to the Grantham scale, uh, an analysis that they published in 1988, this is the, the Cardiff group, showed that there was a relationship between the degree of the severity of change in the amino acid and uh, the likelihood of a clinical outcome. And of course, nonsense change was the most dramatic, but you can still see there's a slight trend um, with, with just missense changes. So an important question now is how many coding SNPs are there um, in the human genome? So if we go back to that Genesant study where they resequenced 300 genes, um, they found a total of 1,000 SNPs that occurred in the coding region. Again, this is in the context of what they sequenced, which was 164 chromosomes. And 574 of those led to sequence changes. So, and this is the breakdown of the distribution of the types of changes. And I've, I've um, listed the, uh, I've separated it by the degree of severity of the amino acid changes. And um, if you extrapolate out to the entire genome, we get a number of something around 60,000. And uh, again, this is in the context of what they sequenced. Now, what they also found is if they classified, again, these changes based on the severity of the amino acid change, that the relative frequency with which they occurred um, compared to the frequency of similar changes in pseudogenes also tracked very similarly to what you see or what I showed you in terms of the clinical observation likelihood, that the nonsense changes were by far the most reduced in, in, in prevalence um, uh, compared to conservative changes, and the, more, you know, the less severe the change, the more often it occurred. Uh, relative to their occurrence in pseudogenes. Another important way or aspect of prediction of uh, significance, uh, functional significance of amino acid changes can be measured by the degree of evolutionary conservation across multiple species for that particular site. And uh, this is from a paper from uh, Miller and Kumar in, uh, that was published uh, in Human Molecular Genetics. They examined seven human disease-associated genes and they found that um, the mutations uh, that cause diseases, and these are for, I said, seven pretty classic Mendelian diseases, were significantly more likely to occur in amino acids that were perfectly conserved across species. But when I went back and I re-looked at their data, I'm showing you a figure, it turns out that um, there's actually a linear trend based on the degree of conservation. So it is true the largest effect is observed when um, there is perfect conservation. But even beyond that, um, uh, if you look at just the number of species in which um, there was a difference 
at that site, um, you could see that there was a linear trend, so that the more substitution evolutionary that are, in evolution that had occurred at that site, the less likely there was to be a clinical significance to that change. Now, as I said, that was for severe or Mendelian diseases. What I have in the yellow boxes is they also studied G6PD variants. They looked at a fairly large number of these. Uh, that called cause mild changes, and you can see there's something of a trend there as well, but not nearly as strong as for um, the severe Mendelian forms. Now, a major question um, comes up, certainly when I've talked about this before. Um, we are, to some extent, making a leap here because what's in those databases are high relative risk variants, and there's a question the degree to which can we, ex can we extrapolate from that to lower relative risk variants. Are they going to be qualitatively similar? So, um, as I said, these databases contain Mendelian or high-risk mutations. So, to address that question, I went and through the literature to see, to identify all of the, as this isn't all of them, I'm sure there's more, but the ones that I could find or, or knew about, um, these are changes that lead to what I would call modest or moderate relative risks, certainly not very high relative risks that you see typically in Mendelian diseases to see what kind of changes were involved in these. And, and all of these are, I guess to my view, and all of this is subjective always, you know, um, statistics uh, is not a hard science, and when you evaluate these findings, there's, there's some degree of subjectivity in what constitutes a, a replication. But um, most of these, or I think nearly all, or all of these have had subsequent independent multiple replications. So um, many of these are pretty, are, are, are fairly well known. Um, the ApoE locus and Alzheimer's disease, um, the E4 allele and the E2 allele, um, those are intermediate uh, relative risks, I would say. And those are both amino acid substitutions. The factor V Leiden, um, which has a frequency of about 5% generally in Caucasians, is, is only in Caucasians, though, um, which has a moderate risk on thrombosis. That, that has um, its amino acid substitution. And hemochromatosis, um, there is a second mutation, not the primary uh, high-risk one. There's a, a much lower-risk one, which is also an amino acid substitution. Um, there's a polymorphism in the PPAR gamma gene, uh, which is also an amino acid substitution, which has a modest, it's been shown through uh, meta-analysis to have a modest relative risk on, on type 2 diabetes. Um, type 1 diabetes, the insulin gene, now this is a VNTR. I don't know that the biology has finally worked out on this, but it's presumably in the promoter region of that gene. I mentioned the delta-32 mutation in the coding sequence of CCR5. Um, Crohn's disease recently identified the NOD2 um, locus on chromosome 16 as a susceptibility gene. Three changes have been identified in Caucasians. Um, all at a frequency of at least 1%. Um, two are amino acid substitutions, and one is a frame shift. Um, CTLA-4 and Graves' disease, another amino acid substitution. Um, then we have a breast cancer, colon cancer. Um, these are all amino acid substitutions. My point being, on this list, you should all now get the idea. Um, what's on this list uh, is, except for maybe one or two cases, are amino acid substitutions. Another advantage of this second strategy, if we're focusing on a much more limited number of SNPs, is that it may be possible to do DNA pooling. And if we're going to do studies on a fairly large number of subjects, that could greatly enhance efficiency also. Um, whereas a, a haplotype-based method usually requires individual genotypes to reconstruct haplotypes. 
Now, another question is, what frequency range should we be thinking about in terms of disease susceptibility alleles? Now, one outcome from these recent SNP surveys also, which have been focusing not on disease genes, but on neutral alleles, presumably, is that there are many, many more SNPs that occur in the low frequency range than the middle frequency range. So if we're talking about 10 to 90 percent range, there are many, many more SNPs between, say, 1 percent frequency and 10 percent frequency than between 10 percent frequency and, and 20 percent or 30 percent and so on. So there's an exponential increase in the number of SNPs with low frequency. Now, if in fact negative selection has been operating because these are disease predisposing, if anything, it's going to shift you know, that a low frequency distribution to lower frequencies. So, so I think we do need to pay some attention to, um, although there's going to be limits to how far down we can go in the frequency range, I think we do need to focus to some extent on at least, I'd say, down to the 1% range um, for disease-causing SNPs. <clears throat> okay, let's see. And what I have in this figure is just to show you that even um, what's on the x-axis is the allele frequency, and what's on the y-axis is the relative risk. And the n corresponds, this is a case control study paradigm, where we're studying n cases and n controls. And um, it just shows you, this is the probability of detection, and this is using a very stringent uh, uh, criterion for significance, because I'm assuming we're testing maybe 100,000 SNPs here. It just shows you that, that even down to 1%, um, in a reasonable size sample, you can detect loci that have relative risks in the four range. And I think that is pretty realistic as to what might actually exist in the population. So um, just overall summarizing the comparison of these two approaches, they're, they're both agnostic um, about the gene that's involved, but the gene-based strategy makes assumptions about the location and the types of SNPs that are um, potentially involved and in which uh, uh, studies focus. Um, I think most of this just more or less summarizes what I've just been saying. How much more time do I have, by the way? Zero? <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, I was going to talk about study designs. Um, I had a major point that... Um, uh, I'll make it one. <laughs> That's right. Um, oh, which way am I going? All right, let me go back. All right, that, that we're talking about complex diseases, and it's very important to keep in mind that, um, and especially genes of modest effect, that it's important to think of genes as risk factors and not as major determinants when we're talking about study of Mendelian disease. And so therefore, it's important to study large population-based and representative samples. Large, of course, because we need the statistical power, and population-based because of validity. That whatever you find, you want to be able to generalize to the population at large. Therefore, it's also important to have an ethnically and culturally diverse sample. Now, just to give you just a couple examples, I'll go through this quickly. This was a study that was published um, last year upon the PPAR gamma locus, and this looked at it was a case control study from the U.S. and a case control study from Poland, both focusing on Caucasians. And here's the results. So the study was highly significant in the Polish subgroup, the Polish cases and controls, and not at all significant in the U.S. study of cases and controls. And there was a significant difference between these studies in terms of those odds ratios. Now, something I want you to look at very carefully. If you look at the real frequency difference between the cases and the controls in Poland, that's about 0.07. Now look at the allele frequency difference between the Polish cases, the Polish controls, and the U.S. controls. 
That's a difference of 9.5%, which is larger than the difference between the case and the controls in Poland. So I'm just pointing out that there are real hazards and risks you've got to be, uh, pay attention to, even when studying a single ethnic group, that there can be significant or real variation between groups that you study. And just another point, even more important, is inter-ethnic differences. This is a look at the effect of APOE4 and Alzheimer's disease. Now, you can see the E4 allele does vary uh, ethnically. Uh, the Japanese have a frequency of about 9% up to about 19% in African Americans. Now, when this finding was originally uh, made, there was some concern about stigmatization, particularly African Americans, because they have a higher frequency of the E4 allele. Well, nobody knew at the time that the risks were actually lower in that group <clears throat> for carrying the E4 allele than the others. So, so in fact, if other measures, you measure how much of the disease is attributed to the E4 allele, actually it's lowest in African Americans because the relative risks are lower. Now, why they're lower, nobody really knows. This could be due to genetic reasons, it could be due to environmental reasons, but it's certainly something of interest and importance to consider. So I'm just saying here, again, um, it's probably very useful, it's going to be very useful to have a large resource in which we can do both cross-sectional um, case control type studies as well as longitudinal cohort studies. This is my epidemiologist hat. I do have an appointment in epidemiology at Stanford also. Um, so uh, again, thinking in those terms that, that it's, going to have, it's going to be important to have a variety of different study designs to look at these SNPs and, and how they relate to disease. So uh, I think these conclusions, uh, in the spirit of time, um, these conclusions I've more or less already said, but there's one more thing I do want to say, and that's to David. Um, <laughs> yeah, take a look. <laughs> David has been, for the last eight years, at least that I've been at Stanford, and, and at least four before that, colleague, a collaborator, teacher, mentor, friend, and I agree with Shirley, department chair, extraordinaire, Thank you for eight great years, and best of luck at Princeton, but at Stanford, you will be missed. Thank you. Thanks. Uh, let's, uh, if there are some questions for Neil, now's the time. Yes. Variation that disappears in the old people indicates those things that tend to kill people off young. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I heard actually. Um, maybe the whole, repeat the question. For yes. The yeah. It's like. What, maybe I think this is what you're saying. Why don't we study survive. survive old healthy people instead of people who die young of diseases? Because then those are the genes everybody wants to have. Because, <laughs> Yeah, I, actually, at the NHGRI meeting, Maynard Ulster was proposing this also. I think the real problem, and I know people are studying this, the problem is people, the real question is whether there are specific genes that make you live longer, or it's the absence of disease genes that makes you live longer. And it's, it's, it's sort of a difficult... You might get both, but they're both interesting. Yes. But it's, it, it's more challenging probably to study that group, because what are your controls going to be? I mean, how are you going to study it? It's, it's, uh, it's an interesting question. It's an interesting question, but... That's my naive answer to your naive question, I guess. <laughs> yes. So, Neil, to what extent, uh, regarding the question of whether we're going to find regulatory variants versus uh, missense variants, to what extent do you think this is just a 
ascertaining bias. We know very little about regulatory sequences to date, and so no great surprise that most of the mutations we found uh, are not in regulatory sequences. Well, so a lot of what I showed you is based on positional cloning, okay, which makes no assumption about the kind of changes that are involved. But the things so, that we found are the ones that may be much more less likely to be regulatory. Well, I told you 1%. Oh, so I'm not sure what you're saying. 1% of what's in the database no, is regulatory. Uh, Neil, I, I think Rick is raising the argument that if even when you have positionally cloning, mm -hmm. the cloners fail because they don't believe changes in the promoter mutation. So that would be a bias in the direction that uh, they go and publish if they see, you know, R28I, but they never publish if they find a couple of A's so, in the promoter. So the answer to that question would be to see how many times pedigrees segregating in a particular region don't show up with a mutation. Okay, and of course that's not what gets presented in these databases. So it's hard to know what's missing. It's much easier to see what's there than to see what's not there. So, and I don't know, I mean somebody probably could do a, a, a survey of all those cases and see what percentage they correspond to. But I can tell you, I know, in the, for example, in the Rett syndrome case, when it was first identified, they found only a few mutations, but when they subsequently studied and looked more carefully, they found a lot more. So over time, you know, more data accumulates. But yes, I think there, there is some, Yes, I think there obviously are going to be more changes that in regions we don't know anything about. If I would make an argument, it's that at least why don't we study, at least start and focus heavily on those changes, those regions where we do know from prior evidence have an effect. And the more we learn about the rest of the genome and its functionality, see, I'm just afraid that depending on association studies, um, the, let me put it to you this way. If statistics has not been able to identify, and biology, those SNPs or those changes that you're talking about in Mendelian diseases, what kind of hope is there for complex diseases where the statistics is going to be even less compelling? But Neil, yeah. the Mendelian diseases are heavily biased to be null alleles. No, 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 they're not null alleles. They're not null alleles. No, 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 60%, 60% were missense. Right. No, no, those are no, sorry, those are... No, no, not null, they're just changing the sequence. Oh, they, they, they still not, have a function? Yeah, yeah, they're not null, they're not null changes. A lot of these changes, like C282Y or, or H63D or whatever these are, they're, effects. they're missing. So the well, they're, diff, they're, they're different, the effects are graded. I mean, they're, some are severe, some are less severe. Uh, if I can weigh in, my... Uh, <laughs> Please do. <laughs> Uh, it, it seems to me that the most compelling argument against this bias of ascertainment isn't a very, very numerically large argument, but it is for those genes where there are several alleles known, where there was no question that this is the right gene, and people really sequenced and believed the sequence, and they very rarely found. Uh, uh, if ever, uh, a uh, anything but a promoter promoter change. The very subtle changes don't seem to be very common. And speaking as a lower organism biologist, uh, the number of uh, subtle mutations where you really know how to look for the mutations is actually surprisingly small. Proteins are surprisingly robust uh, to amino acid changes except in the critical points or the loss of the protein. And uh, I guess that if one had to bet, it would be a reasonable bet to say that 
complex diseases are uh, cases, very frequently cases, where you lose a protein, homeostasis is sufficient so you don't see that the protein is lost or, uh, uh, or made half as abundant or whatever, and then it's only in the presence of a second mutation that you actually get a sort of synthetic uh, effect. And uh, there are you know, thousands of examples of that and very few examples of this sort of weak, weak interaction. So, you know, uh, it, are you a betting man? It's really the... Okay, I think we need to move on, although we love this subject. Yes. <laughs> uh, so, uh,